1: Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion, or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit iai.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. Hello. This debate is called Thinking Dangerously, Living Differently. The theme of the debate is the idea of philosophy as therapy, which has had a long tradition um, from Plato's Alcibiades to Wittgenstein's philosophical investigations. More recently, it's been popularised by an industry of self-help books. But does philosophy have to have a purpose? And if philosophy is supposed to help us live better, how come its insights can be distressing or discomforting? Can philosophy be a dynamic force for radical change about what we think and what we do. Or is it all theory, not practice? Each speaker has three minutes or four minutes to present their thoughts. I'm going to try and stir up some trouble between them and then we'll open out to the floor as soon as possible. Our speakers are Adrian Moore. Adrian is the professor of philosophy at the University of Oxford. His books include Noble in Reason, Infinite in Faculty, and also The Evolution of Modern Metaphysics. Mark Vernon. Mark is a former clergyman We just had a little debate in the green room about how he's not agnostic about being an agnostic he's not (laughs) agnostic anymore but mark is a psychotherapist a broadcaster and journalist whose books include therapy and the meaning of friendship and angie hobbs angie is a philosopher at sheffield university and she occupies the first chair for the public understanding of philosophy and she's also a frequent broadcaster i'm going to ask adrian to kick us off Can philosophy be a dynamic force changing how we think and what we can do?
2: Thank you very much. Well, as we've already heard, the idea that philosophy has a therapeutic role to play is at least as old as Socrates. But in recent times, it's come to be associated above all with Wittgenstein. And for Wittgenstein, the purpose of philosophy is clear thinking. And it's this that is conceived in therapeutic terms. Philosophy is an antidote to unclear thinking. It's a cure for the ill effects of our becoming entangled in or muddled by our own modes of thought. And notable among these are the ill effects of various pseudo-questions that might arise and pose as deep philosophical problems, tantalizing us with their unanswerability. So, for instance, imagine somebody grappling with the following conundrum. Why can nobody else know with the certainty that I do, that I have been hurt? Well, if we attend to the way in which a sentence like, I have been hurt, is actually used, Wittgenstein says, then we'll see that this is akin to grappling with the gibberish, why can nobody else know with the certainty I do, that, ouch, And philosophy can be used to show that there's no real problem here, relieving the person of the urge to find the answer. Well, in fact, I'm enormously sympathetic to this conception of philosophy, or at least I'm enormously sympathetic to a conception of philosophy on which it has a therapeutic role to play. What I find much more problematical is the idea that that's the only role that philosophy has to play, Some philosophy is like that, but all of it. Wittgenstein's view, I think, naturally leads into a kind of philosophical conservatism. It leaves the philosopher with no real business exploring new ways of thinking beyond what is absolutely necessary for the therapeutic purposes at hand. And this is because new ways of thinking can only ever bring with them the risk of new confusions and philosophers, for Wittgenstein, should be looking to minimize that risk. But consider, even if our sole aim when practicing philosophy is to promote cognitive health, why think, as Wittgenstein seems to think, that the only way in which we can do this is to cure ourselves of cognitive disease? Perhaps, we can also take cognitive exercise. And that remark is not quite as flippant as it sounds. Wittgenstein is clearly concerned that we should be in control of our ways of thinking, not they of us. But let's not forget that being confused by our own ways of thinking is only one way of being in their thrall. And being uncritically closed to new ways of thinking I think, is another. So for my own part, I see no reason why there cannot be fundamental improvements in our ways of thinking, or exciting new concepts by which to live, or powerful new ways to make sense of things. And if there are, then I see no reason why philosophy shouldn't help to promote them.
1: Can we give a little round you. of applause for you? You. Encourage. I'm going to encourage friendliness. Mark, uh, can philosophy be a dynamic force changing how we think and what we can do?
3: Um, the word dangerous has struck me in the title. And uh, in the ancient Greek world, which is the bit of philosophy that I could claim to know at all, um, it clearly was dangerous. Socrates you know, was killed by the Athenian state. Um, and it had something to do with the fact that he was a philosopher. Um, th- I think uh, the first Christians were sometimes known as philosophers, um, and the the, the, uh, association there was they too were somehow a threat to society. I think it was because they formed groups based not on kin or allegiance to the state, um, but some other um, kind of bond brought them together. Um, And uh, so that sense of dangerousness um, was a practical um, social phenomenon. Um, But I think that um, to recover some of that sense of uh, how philosophy might be at odds um, or at risk um, in some way. You need to expand the notion of philosophy from how it tends to be used today. Um, And in in particular, I think uh, um, the notion of philosophy closely associated just with thought, um, as Adrian has outlined, is part of that. Um, So one way of doing this, perhaps, um, is to think about the word therapy, um, therapeuticos. Um, and I think that, I'm, I'm a bit nervous now, because Andrew was my supervisor for my PhD, by the way. Um, so, uh, <laughs> but it has associations of, uh, of, of waiting on, um, being in service of, a servant towards. Um, and uh, that, I think, begins to take us into a very different idea of philosophy, which um, was more current in the ancient world. Um, so if you're looking for where um, philosophy is done now, um, I think you have to look both in the direction of religion, and also in the direction of psychotherapy. It's probably one of the reasons why I trained as a psychotherapist, actually, because I felt there's a dynamic there that you don't actually find so much in academic philosophy now. So the religious association, um, let me put it like this. I think that this business of waiting upon, being in the service of, um, and being um, attentive to dynamics other than just what are conventional, hence, you know, the danger, Um, I think that the ancient philosophers were very interested in how one can... um, be res- responsive to and receptive of reality in ways that were deemed unconventional. Um, so if you read Plato and, and other ancient philosophers like the Stoics, um, you know they sing hymns in praise of Zeus. Um, they make invocations. They're interested in things like divination and so on. These seem, uh, areas of life which seem very strange when you think of philosophy now. Um, but I think that there's a kind of sense of which they're trying to um, connect to a flow of life that's much deeper than just um, what goes on in terms of human thought. Um, Human thought has to come to some kind of limit, and it's at that moment that philosophy really gets going, and when you're responsive, able to be open to something deeper than just, um, you know, what human minds, as it were, can grasp. There's a very nice little coincidence of history that captures some of this, which is that um, the year 529 AD was the year that Plato's Academy finally closed um, in Athens, um, and it was in the same year that Benedict, the monk, opened up um, his monastery in Monte Cassino. And I think that in some ways um, the new monks in the 6th century were taking over the old philosophy and because it was the way of life, you know, their rituals, and the way they styled themselves, even having sort of beards and staffs and cloaks and things. It captures something of how, um, what ancient philosophy was, was about um, for us. And often you know, it could be dangerous, deemed dangerous by other people. Religion today is often thought to be dangerous as well. Um, And then just to say a little bit about the psychotherapy aspect too. Um, You know, psychotherapy is uh, waiting on the soul, um, and it's very striking that, for example, whenever Freud mentions Plato, he talks about the divine Plato, and I think he saw himself in some way in succession to Socrates, who had, for example, seen that um, erotic forces in our lives are somehow key, um, and he wanted to struggle with that again. Um, There's a sort of soulfulness, um, you might say as well, that lies beneath reason, that individuals like the Stoics were really interested in, which perhaps we could say some more about, that they thought there's a kind of hubbub of everyday life, um, and that the therapeutic task um, was not to clarify thoughts, perhaps in a more Wittgensteinian sense, um, but was to be able to step back from that hubbub in order that a deeper pattern, a deeper resonance and harmony might come through. Again, reason you know, me- meant as much to do with um, aesthetics, um, so it was like a harmonious ratio. You know, the Latin ratio um, it ca- captures notions of that, which perhaps get a bit lost when we think about thought today. Um, and a sort of trust um, in, in life, that it can unfold if we um, have a right relationship with it. Um, uh, Plato famously said that we're the in-between creature. Um, we're not just purely ignorant like the animals, but neither we do we know and see clearly like the gods. We're these in-between creatures. Um, and there's something about... Uh, our intention, our stance towards life, um, that can be uh, allow something to unfold. And I think modern therapeutic notions about the unconscious, for example, um, try and capture some of that spirit um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a new, new way, in a really a, a new, newly invented way. Um, but both the religious aspect and I think the psychotherapeutic aspect capture something of ancient philosophy and maybe carry echoes of why it might have been a dangerous practice and because it does does challenge the status quo in that sort of way.
1: (laughs) Angie, can philosophy be a dynamic force, changing how we think and what we can do?
0: As we've heard, there's a long tradition, uh, going back to ancient Greek philosophy, about in which uh, philosophy can play a therapeutic role, though, as I'll say in a moment, that's not its only use. In terms of therapy, we have Socrates uh, saying we need to clear ourselves of false beliefs, uh, anticipating Wittgenstein, of course, and it's, that can be quite a painful process. This, uh, the therapy, the care of your soul, the care of yourself, Socrates, can be very painful. You have to go through a stage of aporia, of being at a loss, of being perplexed before you can... Uh, when you've got rid of all your old false beliefs and you don't quite know where to go next. Uh, Socrates' notion uh, of the care of the soul um, is of course taken up by his pupil Plato uh, or his uh, follower Plato uh, who uh, absolutely says that, you know, follows this notion of the unexamined life not being worth living and and Plato says that the whole point of philosophy is to save our souls, which is quite a, a very strong, powerful phrase which actually uh, fits in with something that Mark's been talking about. The Hellenistic philosophers, the Stoics and the Epicureans, uh, they concentrate, uh, yes, on getting rid of false beliefs and the effect that can have on your desires. So they're very keen on the notion of the therapy of desire. But And the idea here is that we often worry about, grieve over, fear or are angry about, things that do not merit those negative emotional responses. We have simply misunderstood the value, the nature, the proportions of whatever it is that's making us stressed, fearful, uh, grieving or angry, and that if we changed our view of the object uh, to see it in its true light, then a lot of these negative emotions would fall away. Yes, and I, and I think all these are useful uh, avenues for philosophy and important. However, I would very strongly add to that that I don't think that philosophy can or should uh, try to get rid of all negative emotions. I think there are certain things in life which should make us angry. They merit anger. There are certain things we should fear. There are certain things we should grieve. I'm not a fully-fledged stoic on that one. However, I, I absolutely accept that there are these therapeutic roles in philosophy. However, those are not the only uses of philosophy, and as I hope we'll be exploring later in the debate, I think there are so many other uses of philosophy. I will just simply list in this brief opening speech just some of the uh, uh, activities that I've been involved in the, in the last few years in my uh, job in the public understanding of philosophy. So I've, I've worked um, on the uh, ethics of money and banking. I've looked at how philosophy might be able to help interfaith and faith secular debates. I've been working on definitions of mental and physical health and illness. Uh, so all these are areas where philosophy can help clarify concepts, help provide inductive and deductive arguments, can be a very useful tool at the table for uh, problems that are absolutely pressing on us now. Um, I'm particularly at the moment involved in campaigns to get philosophy into primary and secondary schools because I think that philosophy is an enormously useful resource to help children to learn how to think in good habits, how to question, how to think critically, how to protect children against various forms of indoctrination. It can help children... Uh, understand that there are different ways of living and being and thinking than the ways that might be on offer in their own immediate postcode. So it can provide alternative models for their future lives. So all these are uses of philosophy in addition to, you know, immediately therapeutic uses. I guess you could call them therapeutic, but only if you very much stretch the meaning of the word therapy. These, These are very socially useful roles for philosophy. However, though I believe all this very passionately, I want to end by saying something which you might find a little odd, which is that though I, in my job, very much concentrate on the public understanding of philosophy and public engagement and its its individual and communal uses, I would want to defend uh, the possibility that there remain some philosophers in our academic departments and outside the academy who just think and who don't necessarily care too much about the uses of their thought or what uses other people make of their thought. there has t- though, that, though it's important that there are some people in the profession who care about the therapeutic and other uses of philosophy, as I indeed do, I really want to defend the rights of some academics and people outside the academy to just think and give their thoughts to the world, and if other people want to use them, that's fine, and if not, they're not too bothered. It is really important we defend the possibility of some people just to think. Okay,
1: so it seems to me that you all think that the purpose of philosophy is not only therapeutic. But I want to ask, is it the primary purpose of philosophy? Is the primary purpose of philosophy to somehow help us? Uh, I think some people, maybe professional um, philosophers in the discipline might say that the object of philosophy is to be able to distinguish moral judgment or to acquire knowledge or to understand the nature of knowledge. Um, I'm going to start with you first, Mark. I'm going to pick on you slightly because I think you're not an agnostic, you're a romantic, right? (laughs) Do you think (laughs) philosophy is awaiting on the right? Um, I suspect your answer is perhaps more robustly than Angie and Adrian's that yes therapy is the primary purpose of philosophy but isn't there more to philosophy than just giving people a way to deal with life?
3: I think there is but um, it's not I I guess that this notion of you Andrew's picking up there on the utility of philosophy and I I think that our conception of uh, what's useful to life is is a bit what's useful to me now And I I think that, you know, that wasn't really a sense uh, um, in the ancient world. It it comes with a very strong sense of the individual and value of the individual, which is a good thing, um, but uh, perhaps one that didn't really obtain um, in the ancient world. Um, And so, um, you know, thinking for its own sake, um, I think had a kind of... uh, um, a sense of uh, making something manifest that was true in the ancient world as well, um, you know, incarnating something. Um, you, you know, so Socrates is, is sometimes thought, even in Plato, who knew the man, um, to, to be divine in some way, as if he was uh, um, bringing to earth um, something which uh, otherwise people wouldn't perceive and see. Um, so this, is, this, this doesn't have a narrow kind of utility, um, in the sense of making my life better, but in terms of expanding my notion of what life might be about, uh, what reality might be about, um, and uh, contributing to my flourishing in that broader sense, um, I think that, uh, that it seems to me, anyway, that a lot of uh, ancient philosophy was uh, therapeutic in that broader sense, a kind of waiting. Uh, it's it's in a way, it's a change of perception. That would be another way of putting it. It's about seeing things in a different way. Um, And the process of of philosophy was not just as were, to cleanse your thoughts and discover some sort of equanimity, um, as as the Hellenistic um, school certainly talked about. But the Stoics, for example, were also interested in, can you align your life to what they call the Logos, which was a kind of deeper pulse and reason that that lay beneath all the false hubbub and emotional tyranny and so on of the everyday. But
1: are you talking here about... Uh, and uh, you're, it seems you're not talking about kind of academic discipline of philosophy as we know it now you're talking about philosophy as it is lived or a lived experience of philosophy right and there, there seems to be a distinction there. No? Yeah
3: well I th- I, 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 I'd be interested in what um, you know my colleagues on the panel here who are you know are academics feel about this but my sense is that um, quite recently it really mostly in the 20th century um, philosophy has um, had to distinguish itself over and against particularly psychology um, but other disciplines too and there's been quite a, um, a s- a silo uh, mentality that's come about, you know, whereas I, I did the theology degree at one point and we read so-called philosophers like Hegel, who was much interested in psychology yes. and theology. Um, that's only in the 19th century. Um, and so I think that, you know, the position which I'm sort of vaguely um, advocating, uh, I think it's not romantic. Um, <laughs> I think it's the norm, <laughs> yeah. but they accept, we live in exceptional times for philosophy now uh, yeah. where, I don't know, perhaps for lots of institutional reasons as much as anything else, philosophy has, is a risk, at least, of losing some of this uh, richer, wider conception.
2: Can, can I just p- pick up on something that Mark said? And Mark was talking about therapy in a wider s- sense, and, um, I mean, to, to compound the annoyance. I mean, you're already <laughs> annoyed because we're agreeing that <laughs> <laughs> philosophy has a therapeutic role um, to play, uh, but that's not its only role. Um, but I think I can compound the annoyance by suggesting a sense in which perhaps all three of us would also agree that there is a broad sense of therapy, and and a correspondingly broad sense of health, in which you might want to say, well, that is the primary function of philosophy, if you're understanding health in a sufficiently broad way. I mean, I'm picking up on something that um, Angie said, um, talking about the the way in which negative emotions can be important. I mean, uh, grief and, and anger, emotions that cause us pain in various kinds of ways may nevertheless play a really significant role in our lives. And the fact that those emotions cause pain uh, mustn't be seen as, as signifying that we're, um, when we're in the grip of those emotions that we're suffering from some sort of sickness. I mean, there's something healthy about being grieving in the right circumstances, can and perhaps even yeah, being I angry in the right circumstances. I I
3: It's free for the first month, and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
0: I I think it's really interesting that the the Greeks had made a big distinction between um, feelings of pleasure, feelings of contentment. They didn't actually have a word for happiness as such, but feeling good um, and what they called a flourishing life, which is much more to do with actualising your potential as a human being. And all of them, all, all of them, uh, Plato, Aristotle, the Hellenistics, uh, the Cynics, they're all interested in what it is for a human being to live a flourishing life. They may come at it from different ways. Aristotle is a biologist. Plato is a mathematician and, uh, and somebody trying to put us in touch with the divine. But that's what they care about. And it seems to me that this is a really helpful distinction. for There are times in life when we just can't feel that happy and and probably shouldn't feel that happy. We, we'd be less than human if we did feel happy. Sometimes with the terrible things happen and yes you can alter your view of some things and adjust them correctly but sometimes things just are terrible and you feel awful for a period and you can't feel happy for that period but you can still try to live a flourishing life even in periods of of great sorrow great grief great frustration great anxiety you can still wake up in the morning and think what can i do today to to create some good in the world what how can i live a flourishing creative life how can i actualize what faculties i have and i think that's enormously helpful and of course does have therapeutic value in its in itself though that's not its main uh, a focus.
1: I, I want to push a little bit on this notion of how fit for purpose philosophy is for a, the idea, this idea of a flourishing life because I think the opposite happens to me that sometimes the, the best philosophy I read is the stuff that it's not that I'm crying and then I read the philosophy. It's that I read the philosophy and then I'm crying, right? The, philosophi- <laughs> the best philosophy is the philosophy that makes you take your head into your hands. It's like reading Heidegger about dying and then not <laughs> being able to live, right? So are we taking a too rosy but and but optimistic that's idea? But that's flourishing. Why can you not be flourishing, flourishing with your head in your hands, yes. angsting about But maybe, maybe it doesn't make you want to live. I mean, I'm saying, is this too, uh, too rosy and functional of you of philosophy as therapeutic? And I'm saying philosophy sometimes can completely calcify you, right?
0: calcify you
1: yeah it can stop calcify you, you. <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> i mean maybe you mean, maybe uh, you mean that, that you mean ossify you mean yeah. stopping thoughts. yeah
1: stop it means it means living seizing your life. you living yeah i'm wondering if we're having a too well, stop idea reading heidegger <laughs> i'm reading the wrong stuff right i'm reading the wrong stuff that's so so <laughs> well, easy well, what, to solve what, maybe See, a, good a student
0: of mine once came to me and said he was deep I mean, and this, this, uh, and, and said he was very, very depressed and, and could see, couldn't see how to, to go forward because he had just read a, a very, very gloomy essay Heidegger had written. And I said, Do you know how old <laughs> Heidegger was when he wrote that essay? And he said, No. I said, I think he was twenty-six. And I said, Do you know how old Heidegger was when he died? Uh, he, he bashed on, he was okay, he went off and lived in his forest and thought about Heraclitus. Heidegger stopped thinking about Heidegger, he started thinking about pre-Socratic philosophy, and good for Heidegger. <laughs> Sorry. Well, but,
2: uh, no, I, 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 I agree. Oh,
0: well, hang <laughs> but on, getting a
1: The
2: other <laughs> thing that I think needs to be emphasised, and, and this is picking up on points that both Mark and, and Angie have already made, is that... Um, we shouldn't equate uh, the therapeutic with the comforting exactly um, and yeah. we shouldn't Good. equate the healthy with the happy yeah. so this broader yes. notion of eudaimonia of yes. flourishing yes. Ho- however one chooses to translate it um reminds us that um the the therapeutic conception needn't be a rosy a rose-tinted conception and maybe Maybe being deeply depressed is a sign of good <laughs> health because maybe the world is deeply depressing. I mean, one has to be at least open to that possibility. Um, <laughs> no. And uh, I mean, it would be it would be great if, while you were open to that possibility, you nevertheless saw ways of meeting it. But but that has to be that has to be on the cards. And in particular, it has to be on the cards if you're keen to develop something like a therapeutic conception. And of I,
0: and I, I think, yes.
3: yeah, I, I mean, again, I think in an ancient uh, philosophy sense there's always a kind of process of initiation or a kind of I mean we would talk about death of the ego which of course is a modern notion but some, something has got to be lost before something more tremendous is found you know so Plato's very influenced I think by the ancient mysteries um, in the way that he conceives of philosophy um, that there's a kind of uh, um, a dying before there's a rebirth the Stoics in their interest in the logos conceive of it as um, uh, realigning your life um, towards this deeper principle, but that requires quite Buddhist, a step in, yeah, it? Yeah, That's quite it? a Buddhist. Uh, Re- requires uh, a kind nation. of yeah. stepping into the mm. unknown and letting go. Mm. Um, but maybe, maybe another difference uh, beyond this sort of this transformational conversion, sort of you know renewal of the soul, all that, which is going to be traumatic. I think um, there is a, um, an issue which we have in the 20th century, which I don't think they had, which is that um, I don't think any of the ancient philosophers really thought to ask: Is there a meaning to life? The assumption was there was a meaning to life. The question is, how can you realize that? How can you bring that about? Whereas with the existentialists in the 20th century, there is, it is now possible to ask the question, is there any meaning at all? And so, you know, Camus' famous remark, you know, is the, the basic question is whether or not to commit suicide. And I think that is so, that's, a, that's something about whether we trust life. I think it's a kind of loss of religion.
1: So we've been talking about the various therapeutic uses of philosophy, but I want to ask now whether philosophy, whether philosophy can change the world, whether it can affect change in the world, and also whether it should. You know, Marx famously said that philosophers have interpreted the world, the point is to change it. Adrian, I don't just want to ask, can philosophy mm. change the world? but I want to know if you think it has
2: um, It um, undoubtedly has I mean you've you've mentioned perhaps one of the most graphic examples which is Marx um, I mean there's absolutely no doubt that Marxism has had a profound effect on the world and um, I'd like to think of Marx as a philosopher but even if you didn't want to think of Marx as a philosopher he would still be an interesting case in point because of how deeply indebted he is to the philosopher Hegel So even if only indirectly, you see philosophical ideas having um, a significant impact on the world. In that case, through politics. But there are all sorts of avenues, I think, um, through which philosophy has has had an influence. Um, uh, Philosophers have um, uh, influenced natural scientists. Um, When natural science gets very self-conscious, Um, as it has to do when it's grappling with some of its most difficult problems, it becomes almost indistinguishable from philosophy, Um, and natural scientists and philosophers can be in significant dialogue with each other, and philosophical input can shape the uh, form that scientific theories can take, can offer new paradigms, can can push philosophy along in interesting new directions. so yes no I think there are I think there are uh, plenty of examples that we can cite of philosophy actually making a difference uh, whether those differences have always been beneficial or not is a further question. I mean, there may be plenty of examples of it having a pernicious uh, effect.
1: I think when I, when I teach yeah. Marx, my students are often seduced by his idea of, of human capability. Mm. But then almost invariably they end up saying, well, Marxism isn't feasible in reality. And I think that is a question whether philosophers... Maybe this is a question for you, Angie. Are philosophers actually affecting transformations in the world or is it a discipline that ends up talking to itself very often? You are a philosopher a chair in kind of the public understanding of philosophy. Are we talking to ourselves or are we talking to the world?
0: I think uh, academic philosophy has gone through periods of its history when it's talked to itself too much. I think there are areas of academic philosophy that do that too much at the moment where, you know, 20 people in the world who all know each other's work get together at the same conferences and (laughs) review each other's papers and and so on. So uh, yes, that's a danger. But I mean, there are so many factual examples of philosophy influencing uh, how the world has been shaped. So ancient Greek philosophy, particularly Platonism, hugely influenced the theoretical underpinning of early and and later Christianity. Freud, uh, Mark has already mentioned how Freud talks of the divine Plato, he tries to translate bits of the symposium. Freud himself says that his theory of the libido is roughly, as he sees it, a reworking of platonic eros, and his theory of sublimation is roughly a reworking of platonic notions of rechanneling. Actually, there are some differences between their theories, of which Freud seems to be unaware, but never mind. I mean, Plato was hugely influencing him. So, I mean, there, there are... Just very, very clear examples of a paper I'm working on at the moment on the relation between reason, eros and magic in uh, both Plato and the Renaissance. Um, I've been researching how Newton um, was very, very interested in not only Renaissance magic and ancient magic, but in ancient theories of daimons, these uh, interpenetrating invisible spirits that interpenetrate the whole cosmos. And it looks as if, and I haven't yet got full, I haven't done all the research on this yet, but it looks as if Newton's view of forces may have been influenced by by his reading via Ficino and other Renaissance writers of ancient uh, religions and ancient theories of the daimonical and and the magical. Um, If that's the case, you know, you've got, the philosophy of Ficino and Plato, directly influencing the imagination of one of the w- history's most imaginative scientists. So, absolutely, there are hard cases in history where you can say philosophers have really influenced how we've lived, how we've thought, how we continue to, to think.
3: So, uh, maybe just add this, I think, uh, I don't know Marx, so you'll be able to correct me on this, but um, I have a sense that uh, Marx... Um, how can philosophy change the world? Is how can we make things better? Um, whereas I think that again the ancient view, and this was certainly the Platonic view, and the view of Plotinus, who was probably the most influential philosopher of all time, but is you know not often read now, um, Western philosopher anyway. Um, <laughs> um, his, his view was not how can we change it, but what can we see? What can we kind of embrace in life? What's our kind of cosmic vision? Um, and he thought that if we um, can know that. Not in a sense of know it in a kind of heady way, but if we can incorporate it into our lives, so somehow we can devise ways of life that um, embrace um, this full cosmic vision of what life is really about. Which you know you might say is the return to the one. Um, that clearly would take a lot of unpacking, but you know it, there's n- no bigger sort of vision of what life's about. If philosophy can help um, uh, enlarge our view. Um, Then I think that's going to have a kind of impact upon then the lives which we choose to live. But of course, you know, it it certainly doesn't happen in the modern secular West very much like that. that Someone once said to me that if you want to go and see um, Platonism alive today, the place to go to is the Orthodox Church, Mm. um, where there is this cosmic vision actually. Um, and, when, you know, when, when, uh, if you go to an Orthodox liturgy, it is a, it's therapeutic. It's supposed to be healing relationships, not just between people and between different parts of uh, the human realms, you might say, but between heaven and earth as well. Um, and uh, something of that, that vision is not, what can we do? It's much more, what are we not seeing? I mean, if only we could see, then maybe our view of life would change. I wonder about that in relation to climate change. I think part of the problem with climate change is that we have an assumption that we're sort of islands of isolated consciousness looking out into a dead world. And so therefore, it's very hard to make a sense of why um, the Earth matters to us. In a sort of future generations kind of way, we we talk about utilitarian arguments. You know, we're not going to be able to, um, you know, the weather's going to go haywire and it's going to set up economic upset economic systems and so on. But that seems to be not satisfying enough for us. And notions of world soul, the idea that the world might, in some sense, be alive. You know, which again is a very Platonic idea, a very Stoic idea. Um, If we really had a felt sense of that again
2: may um, maybe things
3: yeah. would change. I want
1: to go on.
2: Well, I was, I was just uh, just going to add something to what Mark said, uh, um, uh, uh, because I agree with a huge amount of it, but the one thing that I think perhaps I disagree with was the slight sense of a contrast between the two paradigms, that on the one hand, there's this paradigm of um, looking out at the world and trying to make sense of it and trying to make sense of ourselves as part of it, and on the other hand, the, the what I think you would describing as the Marxist paradigm of what can we do to go out and change the world but of course it is possible for those two not to be in any kind of tension with each other and um, if you think about uh, the philosopher that had the greatest influence on Marx himself namely Hegel um, or um, a philosopher like Spinoza um, exactly what you see are these two currents coming together Um, and the 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 aspiration to go out and do something, um, uh, make a difference, is still there. The thought that we shouldn't just interpret the world but should change it as well is still there. But the emphasis is on the word just. It's another example of what we've been talking about. We shouldn't just interpret the world. Interpreting the world properly, um, properly making sense of it, will will include coming to a realization of your own position in the world and and what you can do from that position to make a difference, the kind of difference that is demanded by the kind of sense that reality is making.
1: We've been talking about how far philosophy can change the world and how far philosophy perhaps can change us, can work upon us. I want to move on to think about what the future of philosophy is and its role in shaping our culture and our lives. Maybe, Adrian, I can start with you. Will the philosophy of the future prompt us as... The theme of this debate uh, suggests to think dangerously and live differently, and who might take us there, and what might that look like
2: um, I, uh, My answer to the question of whether philosophy can um, be transformative in that way is, is that I hope so, and, and it is in, in many ways it is just an aspiration. Um, I am myself a professional philosopher. I'm involved in the discipline and obviously you know, like to think that I have my own tiny contribution to make to that process. But to some extent, it's an aspiration. Um, and that um, also, I guess, relates to the um, s- second question that you asked, which is what the transformation might look like. Um, and this is going to sound like a really cheap answer, but I'll say it anyway. Um, I mean, it's the kind of answer that um, uh, Begson gave when they asked him how he conceived the great dramatic works of the future. And he said, if I could conceive the great dramatic works of the future, I'd already have written them. Uh, And, Mm. you know, I think there is a sense in which we just don't Don't know. know. um, And we should be prepared... um, for surprises and and I like to think that's what makes the whole enterprise exciting. It's also why uh, my answer to your first question is the answer that it is, that there's a a very significant element of of hope here. Hope that philosophy can continue to be transformative um, and hope that if it is, the transformations will be um, healthy ones um, and, um, and, and, and exciting and inspiring ones. Mark? Yeah, I'm. Mean, I mean, I'm sure there's a
3: lot of like groundwork to do, um, you know, in fields like ethics and so on, which is going to have tangible impact and benefit. Um, but I guess partly what we're wondering is: that, is there a kind of bigger vision piece? I mean, mm-hmm. I'm quite. Influ- I think uh, Alistair McIntyre, a contemporary philosopher, was probably about right in his book *After Virtue*, um, which uh, you know, if you know it at all, you'll know that it ends with this uh, sort of waiting on what he talks about as a new Benedict. Um, harking back to Benedict in 529 AD um, and the idea, you know, is there, gonna, is there a new vision of life um, that we can commit to, not just in terms of trying to work things out, but shaping our ways of life, um, how we live together as human beings? Um, and that, as Adrian was just saying, is kind of an open question by definition, you might say. Um, uh, you know, we'll, we'll know when it comes, perhaps, if it comes. Whether or not it's found in what we would call philosophy, um, I guess, is another question again.
1: What do you mean by that? As in, you uh, think it's going to be in uh, psychotherapy? It's going to be in art? Wh- where is this? Well, it's you interesting you mention
3: psychotherapy because I guess that Freud, you could say, has been very... He, he, I don't think Freud got everything right, but he unleashed a kind of a sense of engaging with life that has, been, has carried on and people have engaged with since and is now quite influential um, in our culture, um, uh, you know, for, for good and ill. Um, so that's what I... In, in terms of, is it going to be a philosopher or is it going to be a different kind of... Uh, Will we give this person a new name, The new Benedict, a different name? I don't know.
1: When you said new Benedict, I thought, oh, Benedict Cumberbatch, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> but maybe that says something about, you know, that Adrian and I have been talking about uh, Bergson and Wittgenstein and Heidegger, and you guys have been talking about Plato and Plotinus. So do you, is there a kind of... Can we have a little squabble here? Are <laughs> we saying here that philosophy has reached its apex already, or and is are is, is there other things still to come?
0: And of of you course. Do. I mean, did you, did you want me to talk about yeah. the future of philosophy yeah. in general? Of, no, of course there are. I mean, I, I'm actually really optimistic and I'm, I'm in a lucky position in that my role in the public understanding of philosophy means a lot of people get in touch with me um, to tell me what they're doing, to say they want to get started in philosophy. They can be as young as seven and, and as old as, I think, 93 is my oldest correspondent. So I just know there is a real kind of interest and hunger out there. I mean, look at all you here. Look at how the light gets in. I know there are a lot of people who think, let's not let the, these tools rust in the toolbox. Um, I know there are more and more primary schools doing taking on philosophy and critical thinking as uh, extracurricular subjects. And if you think of the kind of... Problems the world faces at the moment to do with what money and banks are for. Do we know what money's for? I don't think we do yet. Uh, What mental and physical health actually would look like? How do we tackle the really serious interfaith and faith secular um, problems and conflicts and challenges that we have? The advances in uh, biology and in IT and the, the challenges that raises for what counts as a a human being, what counts as a life and what what is death, we have huge challenges. I mean, and I think more and more people are realizing that philosophy is an incredibly useful tool at the table. It's clear thinking, it's got very powerful abilities to both create arguments and to analyze other arguments. It's imaginative um, and I think, and it's supple, it's flexible and it has always reinvented itself according to, to some extent to the needs of the time and to, the, to some extent it has fo- shaped the time as we've been looking at the way philosophy is both creative and responsive. So I'm enormously helpful, I'm enormously encouraged that the number of, I mean it's not obviously not just me, the number of academic philosophers who are asked to take part in these public debates uh, over these very important issues Uh, So I'm I'm enormously encouraged and long live how the light gets in. And I think it's (laughs) got a good future, both certainly outside the Academy. I have some concerns, as I'm sure Adrian does too, about, and Mark, about things that are happening inside the Academy at the moment, but we are trying to address them. Um, The divides are breaking down. There are more and more people within the Academy who work outside it and and vice versa. Um, So I think the future is, if not orange, (laughs) then <laughs> a very good, vigorous, platonic, sun-like yellow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on that note, Can I'm sorry, um, did you, did well did you just, just, just very
2: briefly to pick up on something that An- Angie said, because I, um, I shared that optimism, but um, uh, one of the things that makes me optimistic is something that Angie has mentioned a, a couple of times already, which is the fact that... Um, uh, philosophy is more and more being practiced at a very young age, yes. o, uh, yeah. philosophy in, in not just in schools but in yeah. primary schools yes. and I think that 's very important. I mean Angie talked about the uh, the way in which um, philosophy can be um, imaginative and, and creative, and another word that you might also want to use in that context is playful mm, um, exactly. and another word yeah. that you might want to use in that context I- I- if this is not going to sound too corny is childlike yes. I okay. mean my my own definition of a philosopher is somebody who's never grown up and I think we <laughs> have to <laughs> you know I think there's something uh, that that's absolutely basic and absolutely natural um, a, a about philosophy that you um, in a lot of cases, it's just eventually teased out of people. And a large part of what we need to be doing is, is recapturing that sense of wonder, um, that sense of playfulness, including playing with ideas, playing with language, um, which, which can itself help to push n- uh, philosophy itself along in interesting and exciting new directions, but indirectly can help to um, contribute beyond the discipline as well.
1: I'm so sorry, we've run out of time. Um, But can you join me in thanking our magnificent, not at all annoying, wonderful people. Thank you for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast. If you enjoyed this debate and want to carry on the discussion, visit IAI.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes.